So this is uh, our fourth Sunday of this series called More Life, Less Religion. We've been exploring themes like freedom and fear and dignity and desire today. Um, my name is John Kolpitz, if I haven't met you. I'm uh, one of the pastoral team here, along with Kim and Rod. And um, it's been a privilege just to be with you each Sunday in here. I'm usually down the hall with the youth or the kids. Uh, but it's been really fun to be here and to, to be on this journey with you. So... Um, to start today, I, I wanted to, to make today a little lighter and more fun, so we're going to start. I need actually two volunteers, if you want to come up. No catch, um, you won't have to say anything or, or do anything scary, um, but here's to draw you. You, get, you probably get money if you come up, so I have $10 here, so two volunteers, come on up. As long as you weren't at Thursday Night Youth Group, Colton, doesn't count. Oh. Okay, free money, everybody. Come on down. Come on, come on. You, not you, Peter. You were there on Thursday. Oh, Ashlyn, excellent. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Good stuff. Okay, why don't you just tell people your name? Oh, my name is Ashlyn. My name is Grace. Great, awesome, Grace and Ashlyn. Okay, so which one of you wants to be on this side? Which one of you wants to be on this side? It's up to you. Just pick a side. Okay. So, Grace, uh, here's the deal. This, this is a little, a little ex- exercise. There are 10 loonies on the, on the um, stool here. You get to make an offer to Ashlyn. You can give her between 1 and 10 of those loonies, whatever number you choose. And then Ashlyn gets to decide whether she's going to accept your offer and take those or reject your offer because she doesn't like it. Okay? So, uh, if she rejects the offer, then neither of you get any money. But if she accepts it, then you get whatever is offered and vice versa. So... Grace, take a minute to think, uh, strategize, if you will, and, and decide how many of those coins you'd like to slide over to Ashlyn. <laughs> At least one. Go for it. Oh, my goodness. We have a generous heart here. She has slid uh, seven coins over. Would you like to accept or reject that offer? Accept? Oh, excellent. Go for it. Take them and run. Thank you so much. Yes. Actually, yeah, go. There's no catch, I promise. It would be unethical for me to do something weird with you. You can take those three. You get to keep those. That was very generous of you. Clap for that. That was excellent. Okay. Okay, we, need, we have another round. Uh, two more people want to come down? Two more people want to come down? Okay, Jen and anybody? Anyone? Come on. Free money, guys. Come on. You just saw there's no catch to this. I really need the money. My wife's a youth pastor. Okay. <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. Okay. <laughs> Clayton, uh, there are 10 coins. How many would you like to offer to Jen? If she accepts the offer, you both walk away with it. If, you, if she rejects the offer, then neither of you get the money. Come on, I know you're a strategy guy. What are you, what are you thinking here? Yeah, you, don't you want more than that? Accept or reject, Jen? Five. Reject? Really? Wow, because he wasn't as generous as the last person, or? Oh, but neither of you get the money, though. Oh, that wasn't clear. No. Okay. No, no, come back. Do you want to try again? <laughs> yeah, Jen. You have to offer at least one. At least one. At least one. How many would you like to offer? No, you can't. One to ten. One. Wow. Okay, so if you accept the offer, you get one, he gets nine. If you reject the offer, neither of you get anything. Okay. 
Oh, look at that. Wow, good stuff. Why are you, you guys are reacting, excellent. Okay, so uh, we had some fun on Thursday night with this exercise. Uh, I really enjoyed when someone offered five and the person was like, reject. And uh, there's different reasons why we might choose to reject or accept. Um, the sort of standard, uh, this is one of those kind of psychological tests that's used in different places. And one of the standard explanations is that um, we, we sort of, we think we always work with our rational brain and we make the best decision, but if we did that, then we would accept the offer every single time um, because, you know, one dollar, two dollars is better than nothing. And if you reject, you get nothing. But what happens is our sort of animal brain inside of us, not our nice, you know, prefrontal cortex, rational brain, uh, it kind of kicks in and maybe we're kind of offended or we're hurt or we have a sense of fairness and justice and we want to either punish the person for not being generous or, um, or something. Uh, Colton, since you were trying to get up here, I'll, I'll call you out. He, he just found a lot of joy in, in disappointing the other person who offered the money by rejecting it. He, he sort of had warm, fuzzy feelings inside from, from doing that, which, great, awesome. Um, and Peter is the other one we'll call out. Peter, we predicted, he's a pretty rational guy, so we predicted he would take whatever he was offered, and in fact, he did. So, um, but a lot of people in, this, in these studies, they actually, they actually reject good offers because something deeper inside of them is kicking in and, and determining what, they, what their behavior is. And so, um, Today we're talking about desire, and I think there's, there's so many layers of desire in us. So I'm going to hop up on the stage and uh, continue. So as I said, it's, um, it's sort of this animal brain inside of us that we have, this more primitive brain that can kick in, and, and we have these gut reactions as well that, that make us make decisions. Um, we think we're just rational and, and all that, but uh, I think we sometimes buy into this old notion you might have heard of Rene Descartes and his, his famous saying, you are what you think. Uh, but the question that gets asked is, have you ever done something even though you knew rationally it was uh, not a good idea, but you did it anyways? And I think we would all say yes. We do things all the time that we, we know better, but we do it anyways. So clearly there's more going on. We are more than thinking things. In fact, our rational brains have less to do with our decisions and behaviors than we would like to acknowledge. We often allow our emotions, our gut feelings, our animal brains to dictate what we do. And we also have habits and compulsions that subconsciously drive our behavior too. It is our longings and desires which uh, may have the greatest influence on who we become and how we live our lives. So there are many different types of desires that reside within us, not just our animal desires, not just our rational ones. Uh, and one, one type of desire that I find really fascinating is, is called mimetic desire. Uh, and this word mimetic is, is a great one. It's connected to words like mimicking, mimetic, mim mimic, uh, and imitate. Uh, it's also sort of connected to the word meme, uh, which are, as young people for sure will know, and others, there are these things in our culture, these ideas or these, these images or these thoughts, these units of information that get um, imitated and copied and passed on and, and can go viral. Uh, there's even... Um, well, you've heard of uh, the dab, you've heard of the floss lately. It's kind of one of those things. But the classic meme are these things that uh, I'm going to show up on the screen. There's even Christian memes now, whole websites of them. They're kind of silly, but can you put that slide up there? Have you got that one? There we go. I only joined the worship team to avoid the greet those around you time. 
So it's a good recruiting tool for worship team members. Uh, it's true, you get out of all that meet and greet time usually. Um, so this is a classic image. This, this Mr. Bean image, uh, it's a meme. It's been used over and over and over by different people with different captions, and it kind of takes on this life of its own, and it spreads. It, it gets imitated and copied. Um, people want to, want to uh, keep making it a thing. So mimetic desire is uh, about mimicking or copying the desires of others. It's about wanting what other people want and value. Um, it's loving what they love, wanting what they want. And, it, and this kind of mimetic desire isn't just seen in, in memes. It's also this mimetic desire, this mimicking is seen right from infancy. So when you smile at a baby and they, they light up and they smile right back up at you, or you, you make a silly noise like a raspberry or something and they try to do it back to you, they, they want what you want. Um, I think the best, the best example of uh, mimetic desire is uh, with little kids and toys. So I had this happen at my house the other day where my daughter had come back from a birthday party and had a you know, goodie bag, loot bag, and she had a little mini um, squirt gun, which is kind of a silly little thing. Didn't work, <laughs> didn't even work very well. But she was playing with it, and my four-year-old son thought, I have to have that. It's so important. She's clearly loving it. She clearly wants it, so I need to want it too. And so he was trying, he was begging and pleading and, and close to tears about it. Um, but then a minute later, she had moved on to a different toy, and now he didn't care about the squirt gun anymore. He wanted and was desperate for that next toy. Um, so we imitate, we copy desires and behaviors. Um, so uh, the philosopher and anthropologist who, who developed this, this mimetic desire theory was called Rene Girard, and uh, he explained that man is the creature who does not know what to desire, and he turns to others in order to make up his mind. We desire what others desire because we imitate their desires. So yeah, it's definitely not just a childhood phenomenon. I think we can acknowledge this continues in our lives. Uh, it happens when our colleague gets an, a new car, and we think, hmm, that, it'd be nice to have something with a bit better gas mileage like them. Or we watch all these people on TV getting their homes renovated or cooking amazing gourmet meals, and we think, yes, I want, I want that too. Uh, we see someone being generous, and we want to be generous as well. Mimetic desire doesn't need to be a negative thing. It just helps us to be aware of how powerful it is in our lives under the surface. Uh, in his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul appeals to this type of desire when he writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and live in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So, animal desires, emotional desires, rational desires, mimetic desires, there's so many ways in which our wants and our longings drive us, for good or for worse. In fact, desire is, I believe, the engine that drives our lives. It is the wellspring from which our actions and our behavior flow, as one writer said. Uh, another writer, theologian, Jamie Smith, says that we are animated less by principles that we carry in our heads and more by habits of desire that operate under the hood of our consciousness. So that means we're well served by lifting the hood and examining the engine that is driving us. Uh, and I've been most helped this year uh, through the Enneagram and learning about the Enneagram, which I've talked about a couple weeks ago. We spoke about our core fears and, and uh, used some of the literature from the Enneagram, which is a, a psychological framework that just kind of names some things that are just core to what it means to be human. So I believe that as human beings, we all share the core desires for, and the longing for freedom uh, that we talked about a few weeks ago, 
for courage to face our fears, for dignity, as we spoke about last week. Uh, but these play out in different ways in each of our lives, and we're each unique in how we, how we do that. So I'd like to show you the, the nine core desires and motivations that uh, the Enneagram teaches us that are named by the Enneagram. And perhaps you'll identify with uh, a number of them, or, or maybe one is really dominant for you, recognize like, oh, yeah, maybe that's what's going on under the hood, that's under the surface, that uh, I think I'm behaving this way because I want this, but really there's a deeper thing going on in me. Um, so let's, let's put up those slides. We have, we have nine of them. Uh, and those who know the Enneagram will know there's nine, nine numbers, so they correspond. Uh, so number one, to be good and to have integrity. So there's a desire to be good, to have integrity. Yeah, it's not about, it's not about recognition, it's something internal, deep within you. Uh, and and there's, there's often a, a sort of self-critic voice that goes along with that when you don't feel like you're being good, but you really desire that and are driven for that. Number two, uh, to feel worthy of love. Uh, so not just to be loved, but to feel like you deserve it. Uh, and often these are the people who are, are so super caring and loving of other people, and, and sometimes it can be in a way to, uh, to make themselves feel like they deserve love back as well. Uh, number three, to feel valuable and worthwhile. Uh, this is often seen in people who, who are really um, focused on achieving and succeeding, um, and it, it makes them feel like they are, worth, they are worthwhile, that they have value because of what they've accomplished. Number four, to find yourself and your significance. Uh, often someone who's trying to be, uh, express themselves in a unique way or find, find themselves standing out from the crowd or expressing themselves artistically or in some other creative way. Uh, number five, to be capable and competent. Um, often, often these people will want to um, sort of seek knowledge and information to equip themselves to be ready for anything that can come up. Uh, they have a real thirst for knowledge. Okay, number six is to have security and support. Uh, to feel like things are going to be okay. Uh, and so you are loyal to things and people and institutions to, to make sure that you have the support that you'll need when you need it. And number seven, this is uh, an adventurous uh, type of desire to be satisfied and fulfilled often seeking, seeking new things and, and enjoyment of life and fulfillment and meaning and purpose. Number eight, uh, to protect yourself, uh, to make sure that you're not being controlled by someone else or something else. Um, th this is a core desire for some people. And finally, number nine is to have peace of mind and wholeness. Um, these People who are dominant in this one can, can sometimes be called peacemakers, and it's both about mediating between other people and, and keeping the peace, but it's also about protecting the inner peace, the sort of tranquility that's inside. And this happens to be me, for sure. This is when I identify with the most. Um, and I've recognized when, when, I, when my wife is angry at me, uh, I'm angry that she's angry, and I think it's because she's, she's ruining my inner tranquility. She's... Um, <laughs> She's, I don't know if this is a saying or not, but she's harshing my chill. Does anybody say that? No? I just made it up. Or I found it somewhere. Um, so I really don't like that. Uh, and so I try to, try to make that not happen uh, and avoid conflict. Um, so there's often these deeper things that are going, I, you know, maybe I think I'm doing something because I'm, I'm a good person or I'm 
kind or I'm uh, thoughtful, but it's, it's really there's something else going on too. So, uh, let me find my place here. So I think that uh, whether you identify with one or many of these, I think they're really important. They help us to understand ourselves and to help us understand others and, and in our relationships. So it, it can give us clues as to, you know, why was I so intense in that meeting? Or why did I feel such joy when I was pursuing that goal? Or why did my friend do that? Were they trying to annoy me or was there something else going on? There's usually something else going on. Uh, awareness of our core desires can help to prevent us from reacting emotionally and disproportionately to situations. Uh, understanding our core desires can help us um, keep from getting swept up in lesser desires as well as destructive patterns that we fall into. So growing up in, in Christianity, in, in Christian family, Christian church, uh, I found myself uh, and, and my peers that I've talked to formed by this deep suspicion of desire. Desires were things to control or to overcome or, or even to kill off completely. They were sinful. Now, of course, it is true, as Henry Nouwen writes, that some of our desires are unruly, turbulent, distracting, and can wreak havoc on our inner lives and drive us towards self-destructive and damaging behaviors. But Nouwen also affirms that some desires can make us think deep thoughts and see great visions. Some teach us how to love, and some keep us searching for God. I think what happened for me growing up was that the baby got thrown out with the bathwater a little bit with, with desire. There was so much focus on negative desires and avoiding them that there wasn't space to explore the good ones. Which is really sad, actually, because uh, I've come to, to learn for me and, and I think for others that, that God often speaks to us in the places of our deepest desires and our longings. So, that being said, we now live in a time where our lesser desires uh, are being given a lot of power in our lives. Um, as Smith writes, we've embraced an if-it-feels-good-do-it rationale that encourages us to follow our passions and act on whatever whim or instinct or appetite moves us. Uh, Rod has spoken in the past about uh, our navels and, and being driven by what we feel down here. And I think that's what this quote is talking about as well. When we live like this, it's almost inevitable that we'll come to a point, like I did as a 19-year-old, where I had freed myself to pursue whatever I felt like pursuing, whatever my appetites and wants were, uh, which was largely just to mimic what my peers seemed to care about. So independence, possessions, success at school, and going out late at night to blow off steam with my friends. And it led me to a point uh, just before my 20th birthday where I can remember sitting on my parents' bed, uh, tears streaming down my face, and declaring, there must be more than this. There has to be more. I had a deep longing within me for something good and true and beautiful, something that really meant something and that made sense of life. So later, we're going to pray together from Psalm 63. Uh, and David begins the psalm with this line. O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. O God, you are my God. David has tasted relationship with this God, and it spoiled him for anything else. 
Despite his challenging circumstances, he knows that it is his God that he desires. And uh, I'm deeply grateful for all the seeds that were planted in my childhood and adolescence by Sunday school teachers and family friends and uh, others who cared for me, my parents. Um, those things told me later that, that indeed there had to be more. Um, and they nudged me in the direction to look for that more in God. But I think that even without those seeds, each of us are created in God's image. And we have within us a longing for what is good and true and beautiful. St. Augustine, so many centuries ago, uh, he argued that God himself was the best and the highest good. As he wrote, uh, he said, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And David the psalmist continues in this psalm, my soul thirsts for you, my whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. Um, when I read that, it, uh, it brought to mind um, when I was a camper at Keats Camps when I was about 15, many years ago. Uh, and uh, some of you were on staff that year, I remember. Um, and we had great skits. It was like the, the best skits ever in that camp. And, and one of them was kind of silly, but it was, it was this stream of very thirsty guys coming. They came in from one door and they walked all the way along and there was a, a glass of water like this on the top of the piano at the end of the room. And each one, one by one, came along going, water, water, like they were lost in the desert and they could see it, but they couldn't quite make it. And each one, one by one, kind of collapsed on top of each other. Uh, and then I think the fifth person came in and, and they actually, water, they actually made it to the glass of water. And uh, when they got there, they pulled out a comb and dipped it in and styled their hair. It was pretty great. I enjoyed that one. Uh, so s sometimes even when our thirst and our longing takes us to God, we don't appreciate what we found, like that skit. The psalm continues, I've seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. Your love is better than life. It is what I've been searching for. It is the more that I knew was there. Last week we talked about dignity. Uh, about the inherent worth that we have as those created in God's image. And Jesus was all about giving and restoring dignity, especially to the most vulnerable, to the least, the last, lost, and little. Zacchaeus, the woman caught in adultery, the man crippled since birth, all of these people were given dignity by Jesus. And he also gave dignity to our desires. He asked incisive questions that got to the heart of who people were and what they longed for that helped them lift the hood and look at the engine underneath. His conversation with the woman at the well is a great example of that. I also love the story at the beginning of John's Gospel where there's two of uh, John the Baptist's disciples that see Jesus and they come following after him. And uh, the text says that turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Now I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's not supposed to be read, like what do you want? It's not that kind of what do you want. Uh, Jesus gives dignity to their desire and asks, what do you want? What is going on underneath? He asks them to name their desire. So uh, my sort of subtitle today was more confession, less perfection. And, and I believe confession so much more, it's about so much more than just listing our sins. I think it's about naming our desires 
admitting that we don't have everything that we want, to, to desire is to be vulnerable. When we prioritize perfection, on the other hand, as the highest good, we become immune to the vulnerability of admitting that we are not in control of our lives and that we don't have the power to get all the things that we want and long for, that perfection is beyond us. And when we pretend perfection, we actually can harm the people around us as well who think that they've got it all together, maybe what's wrong with me? So confession is vital because it creates the fertile ground for faith to grow, for us to put our trust in God and God alone. Naming our longings and desires is an important part of our worship. In worship, we confess with the psalmist, O God, you are my God, and my whole body longs for you. But worship is not something that we just, just something that we do. It's also something that's being done to us. In worship, we become who we were created to be. We receive and respond to God's love, and we become lovers of the things that God loves. Because we love what we desire, and we desire what we love. Augustine believed that if we get our desire for God right, then everything else will follow. Our loves and our longings and our wants will become more rightly ordered. In a few minutes, we'll have the opportunity to reflect and to consider or discuss with one another what it is that we most deeply want, both as individuals and as a community. And as has been mentioned a couple times this month, this series uh, has grown in some ways out of a, a year's worth of conversations uh, that we've been having as leaders and prayer about who we are as a church, what we believe and what we value most deeply, what we love. And uh, after one of these conversations before Christmas, uh, I sat with these themes that were rolling through my head for a while, these freedom, fear, dignity, and desire. Uh, and I found all of a sudden these four paragraphs just kind of flowing out of me onto my computer screen, uh, one for each of these four themes. And when I, when I looked back at them, they, they felt like core values. They felt true to who we are, uh, but I wasn't sure. Um, and, and I even thought about presenting them here this month, but I actually wanted us to experience them more than to hear them. And I hope that some of what we've experienced together has resonated with you and has given you more clarity about uh, this community that you call home or that you're thinking about calling home or that you're just visiting. Uh, even as we continue to discover together what's next and what God has for us. So to close today, uh, I would actually like to read this fourth paragraph that I wrote, the one uh, connected to, to desire for me. Uh, and I wrote it under the title of Heart Shaping Worship. So I'll close with this today. When we gather together, our habits and practices are expressions of our love for God and for one another. Whether we are eating, praying, singing, listening, sharing, or forgiving, our goal is to honor God and acknowledge the centrality of Jesus in our lives and community. We practice generous hospitality inviting God's presence and creating space for people to bring their whole selves to the table. At our best, we capture imaginations, engage minds, and stir hearts towards a longing for more of God. Receiving the amazing grace of God, we respond with gratitude 
with joy, and with changed lives. When God feels far away, we remind one another who God is and what God has done throughout history. We remember our story, God's story, and we allow it to shape our hearts in ways that make them ache, break, and long for the kingdom. We confess our love for rival kingdoms and their values and ask God to create in us clean hearts. We love because God is love and we embrace our identity as God's beloved. Let me pray for us as we transition to some time of reflection and conversation. Heavenly Father, you have made us for yourself. Uh, You didn't need to, you wanted to, you desired us and you continue to desire us. You give us the space and the time to uh, be wooed to you. You don't force yourself upon us, God, but you invite uh, and you show us and give us good things that point to you. And so, God, my prayer for each of us, for our community, for our neighbors and our world, Lord, is that uh, we would have eyes and hearts and spirits that are open to the good and true and beautiful things that you have for us, that you've made in this world. And when we experience darkness, God, that you would turn up the lights and that you would bring people as you do around us to turn on those lights as well. So God, help us as we, as we reflect and talk together this morning and share with one another uh, to first of all know you and your desire for us and to come to a place of knowing ourselves a little better, to know what it is that truly drives us and fuels us. Um, and God, may we make you the highest good in our life, uh, the one from which all other things flow. In Jesus' name, amen.